Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode three of Michael Jordan's biography by a great fellow named Roland. And we are taking a non-comprehensive look at the great Michael Jordan. We're trying to trying to tease out the lessons of what can we learn from him. So we're spending actually more time than we probably would if we fucking cared about basketball learning about how he became who he was. And we just left off the last episode where he hit the shot to win his college. I can't even fucking remember. Not even Tar Heels. I don't know. But his college team, they just won the Final Four. I don't fucking know. They won a tournament. And it was really exciting. And everybody was pumped. And Jordan hit the game-winning shot. So back into it. Finishing up, he's still a freshman. He just won. It appears the Hina Lord is fucking great. It would take weeks for the celebration to calm, but the new parameters of his life would be revealed to Jordan over the coming months. He says, I was a deer in headlights. I didn't realize the magnitude of what I'd done. The moment had delighted millions. The victory they shared erased doubts about Dean Smith and his program and marked the coronation of young Michael as the Prince of Hoops. It was like a young kid coming out of his shell, Jordan observed. My name was Mike. Everybody referred to me as Mike. After the shot, I was Michael Jordan. So, dude, imagine the vir- the virality needed in a network for enough people to tune in. So, like, everybody's watching this on TV. This is the biggest college basketball tournament. Apparently, people care about college basketball. And everybody's watching it. But the, the announcers, maybe they get it wrong. Maybe they just, like, don't think about it. Maybe they're calling him Mike. But, you know, everybody sees Michael Jordan. And enough people tune in. They get your name wrong. But that one moment changes your actual fucking God-given name for your life. Those are exponential numbers that he's dealing with. And that's just the fucking start. He's just in college still. It wasn't just Michael's life that would be changed forever with his big shot. His parents had also been swept up by the tide, but the transformation had started and just like an orgasm, it was an all or none response. Of course, there had been those like Worthy who thought his confidence as a freshman had been too much. But this second year, they all began to grasp that Jordan's belief in himself reflected a level of intensity no one had contemplated before. And And while Jordan's ego grew, he didn't get dragged down by partying or anything like that. That was what was unique about him, someone said. He could have become totally self-absorbed and gotten into partying and all that fun stuff and the women and all these other things, but the impression I got was was that he was so committed he wouldn't allow himself to be sidetracked, even at his age. He knew he wanted to be the best, and he knew the pitfall, and he wasn't going to fall into it. He seemed very sure of himself sure of what he wanted to do, and nothing was going to stop him. And so I can't remember if it was Mike Glover or Two Lamb, both just total ex-military badasses, but they were on some podcast 
one of them can't remember um but at least one of them maybe both of them didn't drink at all in special forces they didn't drink at all which is absolutely insane that's like not drinking on a rugby team you know because they didn't want to do anything that would compromise their ability to potentially kill more taliban so that's what he's doing. You know, he's surrounded. He is, if he wanted to, he could, if, if they had OnlyFans back then, he could just set up OnlyFans, be making a million dollars a month. But he doesn't even, he doesn't even download the app. All he cares about is fucking basketball. No partying, no nothing. Monk-like focus, even when he's already the best. Because he knows that this is just, this is just a preview of what he will become. After the summer rounds and camps and appearances and his pickup battles and individual work, it was an upgraded Jordan who had arrived to practice that fall. So first season is done. He, he becomes a dynasty, but then he re retreats and goes and just practices. And it comes back the sophomore year who, you know, he already just won the game winning thing. They're like, this is, this guy's great. Sophomore year, he comes back. Holy shit. It says preseason sophomore year. Smith later recalled, I couldn't believe the improvement since the end of his freshman season. Every time he did a drill with the blue team, the blues would win. Every time he did a drill with the white team, the whites would win. The staff started saying to one another, what's going on here? Because he hadn't been on any preseason All-American teams, but he'd grown two inches. He'd worked hard over the summer to improve his ball handling and shooting, and he had so much confidence. So in my mind, it's pretty obvious what happened, which is he's like, great. I'm going to structure my entire fucking life you know, around getting better at basketball. And he practiced on his own. He set up these drills. You know, I'm sure he played a bunch of one-on-one -on -one where he's working on things you know, against less good people. But who cares, man? We just saw from John Donaher that, like, you know, that's fine. You know, you're going to practice it. Eventually, you have to test it. But, um, you know, he was just able to stay in that zone of accelerating returns that Robert Jordan talked about in Mastery for decades. He comes back uh, sophomore year. And those flashes of greatness that he had freshman year go from that weird guy flashing his junk in a trench coat at the park to full frontal graphic nudity. The dick is always out and it is well loved. He was great now. Season starts. It's going well. Um, and I'm including this because it's, it's interesting um, just in his attitude. Uh, so there's some fucking guy named Ralph Sampson um, and he's really good. Okay, and they're, they're about to play him and his team, Virginia. The day before the game, the players were standing out in the hallway talking about the game, and they were scared to death, David Mann recalled. I mean, people don't realize how much Ralph Sampson was feared back in those days. He was like Godzilla in the basketball world back then. Brad Doherty was a freshman, and he didn't want to have to go up against Sampson, so the guys were standing in the hall talking about what they were going to do and how nervous they are. Michael's sitting there, and he's not saying a word. And after a few minutes of this, all of a sudden, he jumps up about 40 inches straight up, slams his hand against the wall, and screams, Fuck Samson. So all that's illustrating is there's this there's this really, really good player that everyone's like fucking kind of scared about. Like, man, dude, we're about to face Mike Tyson. Jordan levitates, hits the wall, and yells, Fuck Mike Tyson. Fuck Samson. And they use teamwork to do just that. They fucked Samson. With two minutes remaining, the Carolina and Carolina holding on, 96 to 90, Samson rose up to the right of the lane for a short jumper. Jordan simultaneously leaped from the other side of the lane and ferociously smacked down the ball. 
the play drew gasps along press row. So, you know, the the second coming of Mike Tyson, this dude named Samson, um, is, is trying to save the game. And Jordan leaps across the fucking court and slaps the ball out of his hand. Jordan says, I was back in my young days, uh, admitting he had no idea that he could even make the play. I surprised myself. That was the beauty of my game, and it propelled me in my career to some degree. No one could sit there and tell you what I could do. I couldn't tell you what I couldn't do and what I could. And that was the beauty of everything. Playing in Smith's system, Jordan had yet to discover anything close to the full range of his abilities. And so they win. And Samson leaves University Hall that day, head down without speaking to anyone. Season continues, um, another game. Uh, some guy just, just comments to just illustrate the intensity that he's still bringing. Jordan worked as hard as any player I've ever seen, especially an excellent player, said Duke coach Mike, whatever fucking guy's name is, after the January game. He set the tone for the game. He was as tough mentally as, as, as I've ever seen him play. He said, I want it, give it to me. I'm going to work. He was just excellent. We wanted to play defense on him. We diagrammed and said, this is what he's going to do. He still did it. I admire that. Even when he missed shots, he was working so hard to get them, he never gave us a chance to get back into it. And so I think the point there is he worked as hard as any player this guy's ever seen, but especially an excellent player. Because, you know, if you're excellent, what you know, what are who are you really competing against? If you're the best, who are you honestly competing against? Like why you know, it's not it's not take doesn't take that much to win. But I think the answer is he was competing against himself and what he and the picture of where he knew he could go. And so second season's done. I don't think they win. Um, they, they don't win the like fucking final four thing, but Jordan won an award. Yay. Um, Jordan was kind of burnt out and he told his coach like, Hey, you know, I, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from basketball and it, just, just like for a couple weeks over the summer coach is like, Oh, that makes sense. And so the next day, um, coach comes in to the gym and he finds Jordan working on his game. And, uh, you know, the coach is like, Hey, Hey dude, how was your seven hour break. He's like, well, I had to get better. I'm back. And that is a fucking insight into his character. Because like, if you truly thought you were the best ever, why would you do that? So he had this like crushing fear that he wasn't good, even though he was, and he's able to hold that in his mind. And I think that's a critical point. Ah, there's some like fucking postseason tournament um, where I think everybody wants to be part of it. Um, I don't know. Ed Pinky remembers Jordan playing with a fury and talking trash like Pink Pinkney had never heard it talked, even in New York. So, the best guy ever also happens to be a stand-up comedian-level good trash talker. There must have been a hundred guys trying out for this team. Pinkney recalls, and they split us all up. I will never forget how he played during those tryouts. They split us up into groups of four. I was on his team. Bobby Knight was on this scaffold in the middle of the court, and he would overlook all the courts. I think there were some other coaches up there with him. With Michael on our team, we did not lose a game. It was ridiculous. You play each game to seven. They had this clock, and you played until seven or until the clock sounded off. We'd go to one court. We'd beat the team seven to nothing. He'd score every basket. 
and I think there's like tryouts and then there's also like this tournament or some fucking thing I don't know but somehow I think it's a tournament maybe it's a tryouts um the hotel where everybody's staying at has a, pa- a small par three golf course which immediately attracted Jordan's attention the only thing he wanted to do when we weren't playing basketball was play golf Pinkney remembered we practiced and that guy would come back and he'd spend his time there that's all he did he'd go do that and then we'd go practice it was the same deal when he when we went away he just loved to play i know he didn't sleep much so this picture is starting to emerge you know a total fucking psycho competitor but he he's able to keep that energy rolling you know it's not like he's this bipolar person who's really competitive and then he pussies out he's able to keep this for years and you know when practice is done all, instead of taking a nap or relaxing all he wants to do is go play golf you know it'd be, it'd, it'd be like we're you know I'm, I'm at some fucking wrestling camp and then instead of like hanging out with everybody i discover that they have like dance dance revolution and i'm like fuck and then like all i do is go play dance dance revolution and everyone's like what aren't you tired i'm like yeah i'm tired but i love winning uh so that's what he's doing he's not sleeping he's he's a psycho um jordan led the team in scoring averaging 17.3 points over the eight games he may have missed out on a second NCAA title, but then he won this Pan-American thing, which I don't know what it is, but basically included that because he's still crushing it at the highest levels, but also he's starting to be a crazy person broadly. Once rested, it's back to college for another season. Um, Jordan's leadership relied on more than instilling the fear of a scolding in his teammates. No one on the team, including freshmen, wanted to let him down. It was not something Jordan articulated, as he often explained, he wasn't much of a rah-rah type. More, he played all out and insisted on the same from his teammates. As Pinky had described, Pinkney, whatever, had described on the Pan Am team, often he could motivate them with a mere frown. None of them wanted to become the target of his furrowed gaze. Mostly, he presented a picture of efficiency. Coming from New York, I've seen so many players with great talent wasted. Matt Doherty, then a senior, explained at the time. Michael puts every ounce of talent to use. So he's back for his third season. You know, shit is about to get fucking real. But he's not, like, really necessarily a team leader. Like, oh, you know, I'm the captain. You know, like, I'm the CEO of the team. Like, I'm going to help everybody win. He's like like a crazy person, uh, a savage. And he leads through ruthless example. And everybody just wants to live up to his standards so that he doesn't hate them. Jordan, too, was very much a different player now. Polished and determined, um, Duke guard Johnny Dawkins had observed his growth. Jordan goes all out, he said. Not just physically, like he used to, but now he outthinks you. Backdoor here, lob to me here, good defensive play there. Of all the players, he's the most impressive. And to me, the craziest thing is that it appears he just keeps running this thing. Like if we look at that um, expertise and expert performance episode, um, it, it did a pretty good analysis of there's some people who start something, they get you know everybody starts something and gets better for a while. That was what that bitch Galton said. But his thought was when people stopped getting better, it was because it hit their natural limits. Whereas uh, Anders and science basically says it's because they just like aren't doing correct deliberate practice don't have a growth mindset and they're just like hampering themselves by accident and uh, but you look at these people these experts and you know how many times people start playing basketball and they get better 
until junior year, senior year. Yeah, I didn't really get much better. And then, you know, maybe you play in a division three college and then you play freshman, sophomore, and then like, you know, you phone it in and then you quit before senior year. But like, how is he able to keep running this? You know, it's, it's like he's, he's compounding at 50% year over year. And, um, Again, that third season, it just insane performance. Um, but in the critical time, they lost and got knocked out of the playoffs. So he's finished his third year of college, did great, world-renowned, everybody knows him. But he returns to Chapel Hill thoroughly depressed and contemplating his future. He would win every major honor that basketball had to offer that spring, every player of the year award, but he was still depressed. And so his coach sat him down and said, hey, I think you need to go in the NBA now because, you know, there's that, do you finish college, do another year and, and then, you know, risk, uh, an injury or do you go now and, you know, maybe you're a little bit less tested. You don't have like a storied college career, but like you, you're in the pros and he decides he wants to get drafted in the NBA, the rookie. Okay. Now Roland is basically like, I just got to drink out of respect. Roland's basically like, uh, like Tolstoy, who wrote that fucking book, War and Peace. So this book is a giant. So um, I think we've already learned a lot of the lessons we're going to learn from him. But I do think it's important because, you know, okay, okay he's, he's competing against college kids. What happens when he gets to be, get, goes against the pros, okay? And so I'm going to cover a couple seasons. Just really, we're just going to really try to see if we can figure out how this unknown guy whose first varsity game was junior year of high school, ended up becoming the best to ever fucking do it. So there's this big damn preamble, but he gets drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Um, before the season starts, he plays in the Olympics against a bunch of NBA greats, and he, he dominates. And so, again, it seems like every time you, you pick up your head, he's compounded 50%. Um, you know, in the Olympics, just an interesting comment about it, uh, Jordan played with a fury down the stretch, including 20 points in the finals as as Team USA doused Spain 96-65 to for the gold. He embraced the smiling knight in a long hug afterwards and moments later waved a small American flag on the medal stand. He kissed the medal, sang the national anthem, and then bolted into the stands to present the gold medal to his mother. He reminded her of the vow he made as a disappointed nine-year-old after the American loss of the to the Russians in 1972. So he wins the Olympics. He comes back. He's what, I don't know, 24, something like that, 23. Uh, and he comes back to his mom and said, Hey, remember I promised you a gold. Here you go. She's like, Jesus, dude, you're like nine. Well, there's no chance that I thought you were going to do that. Um, but he's, he's now moving into the league. Uh, and two weeks later, the Bulls announced Jordan signing a seven year, $6 million deal, uh, the third highest in league history. And then he does this shoe deal uh, with Air Jordans. Um, you know, everybody, including Nike, they're like like $25 million company at the time. They are banking their whole hopes on Jordan. Um, and think of that pressure. But he, he seems unaffected so far. And um, those first Nike negotiations would bring Michael Jordan to the beginnings of a life-changing economic power. So he gets there. And he had assumed that life as a Chicago Bull would be very different from his days as a North Carolina Tar Heel. Even so, he had no idea how dramatic the difference would be. It began with coaching. No longer was he bound by the dictates of Dean Smith or Bobby Knight. I think Bobby Knight was the Olympic coach who, um, 
side tangent, but he, he was the IU basketball coach and he'd like yell at his players. He'd like throw a chair and my, my Oma, old little gra- German grandma lady, rest in peace. Um, she like never liked him because she, my, my parents went to Purdue. So she like hated Bobby Knight. And she also just didn't like how he behaved. So when she had horrible dementia, oh, and he always wore a red sweater. So when she had horrible dementia in the old folks home, Lord forgive us, but there was a guy who had a red sweater on and we came to visit her and she was like, you know, you know who was here? That Bobby Knight guy. He was here. We're like, "Uh uh-oh. What do you mean, Oma? He's like, yeah, he was here and I gave him a piece of my mind. And we're like, Oma, what do you mean he was here? How do you know it was Bobby Knight? She's like, he had his red sweater on. We're like, oh God. And uh, turns out in just her dementia language, just shouted at a fucking random guy with a with a red sweater because she thought he was Bobby Knight and so Bobby Knight coached the Olympic team that's the story about him and he had a system as well but Jordan isn't playing under either Bobby Knight or Dean Smith with his new coach who is 44 year old Kevin Lowry there were less rules Lowry was a man who understood that superior athletic talent dictates its own agenda Under Lowry, the team's young star was going to get the ball as often as possible. So Jordan had humbled himself and played under two demanding coaches. He learned what he could do with the system, but now he's a free spirit. Jordan would say many times that Lowry was by far far the most fun of the coaches he played for. He gave me the confidence to play on his level, Jordan later explained. My first year, he threw me the ball and said, hey kid, I know you can play, go play. I don't think... That would have been the case going through another coach's system. Suddenly, the Jordan on the floor appeared a lot like the gums-bared, high-flying specter who had haunted Laney's gym in high school, albeit with a more developed physique and a much more polished game. There was no hiding the athleticism now. And so, you know, he had masked his individuality, like Robert Greene suggested, only to let it blossom, and now he got drafted the Bulls. The coach is like, hey, bitch, yeah, go kill. He's like, what do you mean? What about the system? He's like, you are the system. Lowry made the year about Jordan finding his identity and his confidence as a player. The coach allowed Jordan to, dis- to discover his game on his own rather than trying to impose it on him. He recognized Jordan's great hunger and realized that it was his job to feed it. Oh, <laughs> and so all that was going on at the same time, like a bunch of his teammates had alcohol and cocaine problems. Um, there's a good netflix documentary actually called the last dance about michael jordan and the team and they describe this initial early chicago bulls as a traveling cocaine circus so jordan so you have that guy jordan he's like wait i thought we're here to play fucking basketball and their practice facilities were ramshackle at best you had to park on the grass like i think you had to he had they had to wait for the kids to like go to the dude swim practice before they could practice but jordan yeah, he, he grew up on the fucking streets. He didn't give a fuck and he got to work. Jordan soon found his bearings. He came to practice every day like it was game seven of the NBA finals. He would destroy you in practice. That's what set the tone for our team. Yet, from the start, Jordan remained focused not on what he had, but on what he didn't have. There's no doubt I'm playing a newer, tougher level, he said after his first practice. I've got a lot to learn. So that's that contradiction. You know, on one hand, the the ruthless confidence to destroy these veteran players. On the other, total humility to realize like, hey, I've got a lot to learn. 
You knew you had somebody special because Michael was always there at practice 45 minutes early. He wanted to work on his shooting, and after practice, he'd make you help him. He'd keep working on his shooting. He didn't care how long he was out there. The thing that I always loved about him, when you take him out in practice to give him a rest during a scrimmage, he was constantly back on you to get him back in. Michael loved to play the game. So he's heralded as the second coming of sales, and then you find him on the weekend drilling objection responses. You know, it's like, hey, we're too busy. You know, that's actually the exact reason that you should meet. The fact that you're so busy means that you need this. You're like, what the, this is, this is, a, this is a clue. I'll never forget seeing those practices early that year. Good grief. There was an intensity in Jordan that was unlike any other player who'd come along because he was so talented. You could see he was such a hard worker and you knew he was going to do things. He'd take it to the rack with such ease against everybody. He was demanding. He wanted defenders to stick on him. Tighter, come on, defend me, damn you. He'd call out names. He was a trash-talking son of a gun too. It's interesting. When you have a rookie who comes in like Michael did, Rod Higgins recalled in 2012, instantaneously he got respect from the veterans because of his competitiveness. When we started out in that training camp, I noticed that this kid would embarrass you if you didn't bring your level of play up. He didn't really care who the veteran was that was guarding him either. So again, lessons here, but you know, he spent years fitting in, not making waves, you know, rolling into the system. And I'm sure there was a temptation to do the same here, but he looked around, he guessed that he was the best, or at least he could be the best shortly, and he decided to give in to insanity and put his dick on the table. At age 21, Jordan was bursting with anticipation to play the first game on Friday, October 26, 1984. It was against the Washington Bullets in the creaky old stadium. There were none of the laser shows that marked his pregame introductions later. Instead, he came onto the court that first time, accompanied only by the strains of Michael Jackson's Thriller. The 13,913 fans, about 6,000 more than the Bulls' opening night a year earlier, cheered loudly to greet him and erupted each time he did something to change the flow of the game. It became clear that very first quarter that Bulls, game, Bulls, Bulls games would no longer be known as sleepy little affairs. So, first game. Boom, he's popping off. The coaching staff got another eyeful in the second game in Milwaukee. Assistant coach Blair recalled, when he started abusing Sidney Moncrief, who we considered one of the top five defensive guards in the league, we knew that we had a special person. So, you know, it's this like, this guy who grew up wrestling pigs, he's wrestled a little bit in college, and then, you know, you get in in the, the MMA room, but he's taken down world champions and he's abusing them. You know, it's like, it's like um, Khabib Nurmagomedov. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say it, but uh, Conor McGregor was talking shit to him. And he's like, I'll smash you. I will bite your heart. I smash you. And in the fight, he's taking Conor down. He's saying, talk now, bitch. Boom, boom, boom. Talk now. You like to talk, bitch. And after he, after he like, I think he tapped him out. He was like, let's go again. Let's go again. And uh, Connor's like, I'm sorry. So that guy, you you know, you got something special. In his third game, he scored 37 points, including 22 in the fourth quarter. In just his ninth pro game, he scored 45 points against San Antonio. Six weeks later, he burned Cleveland for another 45. Then came a 42 performance, then a 45. The energy level was almost unnerving, recalled Doc Rivers. 
I remember the first year saying to the guys in the locker room, there's no way that guy will be able to play with that energy for an entire season. Few saw at the time the immense power that Jordan was was acquiring as a, re, as a result of his captivating play and his Nike contract. Jordan himself would acknowledge that the incident made him realize that the game's established stars were against him. It planted the seeds of dislike for both Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson. So, I don't remember exactly what that is. I think they either like made an offhand comment or they like didn't think to include him in something and Jordan took that fucking personally. The incident was gasoline on the fire of Jordan's competitiveness, explained Vaccaro, who had begun spending substantial time behind the scenes with Jordan. That became his personal crutch. That's why we watched this person turn into the killer on the court that he is. He took them all to task. He never forgot that day. He's smiling today and he's kissing with everybody and all that stuff, but he never forgot that. That was the, per- the first public snubbing of Michael Jordan. Do any of those guys remember that today? Does anybody admit it? When he got the snub from Isaiah, who was a great player obviously, Michael took it and made it a thing he put into the back of his mind. So the best players in the whole league, I think they do some fucking all-star game or like, I don't know, they, they don't invite him to something. And so he's like, what better way to drive myself to crazy competitive levels than now I have a blood feud with all the best players in the entire fucking game. I hate them all. And Isaiah Thomas, that that guy, he even personally apologized to Jordan. He came up, he's like, hey man, I didn't mean I didn't mean to snub you. And Jordan's like, well, you should have thought about that before you did. That night, Jordan scored 49 points with 15 rebounds to help help the Bulls to a 139-126 overtime win. On one breakaway, Jordan clearly paused, giving Thomas just enough time to run into the picture before throwing down an emotional dunk, which the game's broadcasters immediately identified as taunting. Afterwards, Thomas again grew angry with reporters. It's over. It's over, he told them. Far from over. Their personal confrontation would play out over the ensuing seasons as the Bulls battled to overtake the Pistons in the Eastern Conference. You know, it's like you take him down, you let him get back up. You look at the ref. You look at the camera. You take him down again. And it was like... Not even a thing that a normal person would get mad at. And Jordan drove this stake into his heart and developed like a deep hate for this Isaiah Thomas guy. And that's how he finished that second season, or I don't remember what season we're on, but and so he's, he's, he's coming into his own with success now. And he's also becoming so famous. With this insane fame began a constant demand for his time and attention by the media. As positive and profitable as the public spotlight was, it also hastened Jordan's alienation. He couldn't go to restaurants, malls, gas stations. People were all over him. So he ended up gathering an entourage around him. But even then, his weird traits started showing through because they started calling him the Black Cat. Those in the entourage soon took to calling him Black Cat since he could pounce as quickly in a social setting as he could in any game. Jordan seemed driven by an insistence on challenging those around him even in little ways. His verbal gamesmanship was conducted at a level that seemed worthy of anything he did on the court. To deal with him, you have to go right back at him. He seemed to enjoy back-and-forth banter as much as as he relished a good game of one-on-one, and he approached it with the same mentality. And and I just included that because a picture of this guy is emerging. Like, 
in order to drive himself to the even higher levels of performance he needs, he becomes an addict, an addict to competition, an addict to winning, a crazy person. But instead of drugs or women, his addiction is to winning. And he gets withdrawals worse than any heroin addict when he loses at anything. And so if you watch that um, Netflix series, The Last Dance, um, there's a little, little midgety fellow named Jerry Krause who is fat and never played basketball, but he's like a scout or something. And, and he's part of the management and he's actually pretty integral to success of the whole team, but uh, his interpersonal skills are not great. And so he comes in starts making moves, but also just like super insecure little bitch moves too. And so he's alienating Jordan for really no reason. And so in the second season, you know, Krause is coming in, then Jordan breaks his foot and um, around the league, veterans gave each other knowing looks. Jordan's relentless all out style had finally caught up to him. Uh, it's probably why he got hurt because he played so hard all the time, some veteran says. Uh, and this hurt the team. The team's lack of direction in Jordan's absence indicated just how much of a load he'd been carrying. The Bulls' record stood at 22-43 in March when he told management that he believed his injury was healed and he wanted to return. I didn't want to watch my team go down to the pits. I thought I was healthy enough to contribute something. And so, you know, so uh, they go into this more in that last dance thing, but basically he broke his foot and it was like potentially... Uh, career-ending injury if it didn't heal. If it did heal, it's probably totally fine. And so he's like chomping at the bit, like, let me play, let me play. He goes out, like he's out 60 games or something. And he's like, hey guys, I gotta play. And they're like, no. And he's getting pissed. And so they agreed on a compromise where he'd play gradually. So just seven minutes a half at first. He's like, fine, you can play, but we're gonna we're gonna limit the risk. You can play seven minutes and then I gotta, then I gotta pull you out. And, um... <laughs> He comes back the second season and he vented his anger by almost single-handedly driving the Bulls through through a reversal of fortune. Um, they get so they they make it at the playoffs because there was you know and and it's like a meme on the internet with this last dance um, interviewing Jordan. He's old Jordan now. He has a glass of whiskey that is so damn assertively full and it's like always at different levels, meaning he's just pounding whiskey to do this fucking interview. And he goes, and I took that personally. And so, uh, you know, he, he takes things real personally, but he, he comes back and they um, make it to the playoffs because he felt that they were that the team was trying to sandbag and not have Jordan play so that they could get a better spot in the draft or something like that. And if because if they made the playoffs, like they give the draft to the shittier, like the higher draft picks to the shittier teams to make it more fair or whatever. And so Jordan comes back and on the hurt foot, playing the few minutes, barely sneaks his team into the playoffs. And they're like, God damn it, dude. Like, I wanted the good draft pick, you idiot. I'm trying to build a dynasty. And he's like, I didn't know I was playing with a bunch of pussies. So they're playing against the Celtics. And this is when and this is when they had Larry Bird and some other people, but like really good, really good team. And, you know, the they're taking the Bulls lightly because they're like, hey, yeah, the Bulls is the Bulls are horrible, man. Okay, like they're, look at them. Like they, they barely even made it in the playoffs. And so they're like, should, should we do anything to, to make sure Jordan doesn't affect us? They're like, nah, it'll be fine. Well, the first game, Jordan scored 49 points, uh, but they still lost. After that first game, uh, we were like, eh, maybe should we double team him? But the coach was like, yeah, we'll think about it. I mean, 
they won 30 games, we won 67. There's no chance that they beat us. But Jordan had something else in mind. Three nights later, before game two, he was sitting there in total silence in the locker room. Michael was just extremely focused, and we knew he was intent on doing something big. Jordan took 41 shots and made 22 of them. The Celtics, the Celtics fouled him plenty, and he made 19 of 21 free throws. He also registered six assists, five rebounds, three st steals, and four turnovers in the box score. He scored 63 points, which is an all-time single-game playoff record. And Larry Bird, arguably the best basketball player in the world up until then, said, that is God disguised as Michael Jordan. Still, they lost that game and the next one. But the outcome of, the, of this series hardly seemed to matter. The, NBA, the entire NBA and its fan base were abuzz over Jordan's performance. It also marked an important moment for Jordan personally. Up to that point, there were so many media guys saying he was good, but like, he's not as good as Larry Bird, he's not as good as Magic Johnson. Jordan said, looking back years later, I earned Larry Bird's respect. To me, that showed me I was on the right track. So his second season's done. You know, all the building blocks are almost in place. You know, it's like it's like Berkshire Hathaway stock. You know, you looked at it in 1990, you're like, oh my God, it's 2,000. And then you look at it in 2003, you're like, it's 20,000. You look at it, it's like, it's 200,000. Like, it can't keep going up. But he clearly has tapped into a vein. He's tapped into something. His second season's done. The building blocks are almost in place. And he hasn't even met Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, any of these famous people that help him get championship after championship. And so we're going to look at a couple more seasons, a few more lessons. I'm going to give my thoughts on what we can take away from this God among men. But if you want that, if you want more, if you want it all, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.